right? So last week we started a new series uh, that we have called The Gift, precisely because during this Advent season, we want to remember and we want to celebrate that Jesus is the gift of gifts, right? That he's the ultimate gift. Uh, actually, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 calls Jesus the inexpressible gift. So I don't know if you have ever, ever captured the magnitude of that phrase. What does the word inexpressible means? But as you picture yourself as a little kid, you know, as a father, I've seen this time and time again. In which I pick something for my daughters. My wife and I pick something for, for our daughters. And he, and, he, and he happened to be the very thing that they wanted. And they'd been dreaming about for years. So about five years ago, I made the worst mistake in my life. I gave my daughters a puppy. And they had been asking for that puppy for five years before that. And my excuse always was, well, I can't give you, because you used to live in an apartment. I said, I can't give you that puppy because it's not allowed in this apartment, right? But the moment we purchased our first house, they remember, man. I told them when they were like two, and they still remember. And I remember clearly when we gave them that little thing <laughs> to them. And their expression is this inexpressible gift. It was like, really? Actually, the question was, are you serious? When we think of Jesus, it's precisely that. When we think of Jesus during Advent, during Christmas, we must remember why is it that he is the inexpressible gift. Last week, Pastor Eric talked about one of those gifts, if you will, is that he is our hope. Not only that he gives hope, but that he is our hope. These two, these two things always go together, right? And today, we're going to talk about the second gift, um, if you will, and it's love. And there is no better passage for us to look into this topic than Isaiah chapter 53, that is a well-known passage. So if you are here with me, or even if you are at home, could you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verses 1 through 12, which is the entire chapter. If you are here, could you please say, I'm here. I'm here. This is the word of the Lord. Who has uh, believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Verse 4. Surely he took... Uh, up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, can you say we all? We all. Like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned 
um, to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord made his life... Um, an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the greats. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, all of us, and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, please speak to us this morning. We want to see once again in your word Why is it that you are the gift of gifts, the inexpressible gift? And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, you may be seated. There has been a few times in which my wife asked me this question. Do you love me? I don't know if you've ever been in that awkward situation. But every time my wife has asked that question, it it makes me wonder. Actually, there has been times in which, you know, I say, well, I don't make a big deal out of that. And I'll say, well, baby, of course I love you. But there has been other times in which I actually stop and think, why is it that my wife is asking me this question? Is it maybe because I'm not saying it enough? Is it maybe because I am not demonstrating it enough? Is it maybe because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do? Or am I doing something that I'm not supposed to do? Or maybe, maybe, just maybe... My wife is asking me this question because she just wants to hear it again. Maybe. It's not just one of those things. Maybe it's just the whole thing. Maybe it's all of these things together. Maybe my wife just wants to ask me, do you love me? See, when I think of our relationship with God, I think that that's a valid question. I think that many times we can ask the Lord, do you love me? Maybe sometimes we need to ask that question because we're not sensing his love enough. That's a valid question. It is a valid question if you don't hear that he loves you enough in his word. That's a valid question. Maybe it's a valid question because as human beings that struggle with so many different things, um, maybe sometimes we feel that he's just not doing enough. And that's a valid question. But the more I thought about this and the more, I've, the more I meditated on this concept of the love of God, I came to this conclusion. I came to the conclusion 
that if we want to know how much God loves for us, we should not just pay, pay attention to what he does and what he gives or even to what he says, even though we're supposed to. I think that the greatest evidence of God's love is what he was willing to surrender. So let me give you this definition of love. Love is measured not just by the, by the act of giving or saying. Let me explain that. It is possible for you to give without loving. And it is possible for you to say that you love someone without loving. But it is impossible to truly love someone and not willing to be uh, not willing to be to give away or to surrender something. If you want to know what is the ultimate expression of God loves for you, you have to see what God was willing to sacrifice for you. Actually, if you're in a relationship, if you're married, if you have kids, if you have friends, if you have relatives, if you want to know how much you love them, look at what you're willing to surrender for them. Look at what you're willing to sacrifice for them. A relationship in which sacrifice is not there, that's not love. It might be something else, but not love. So if you are here and you're wondering the magnitude of the love of God for you, you have to pay attention to what God was willing to do for you in Jesus Christ. No better passage than Isaiah 53, in my opinion, for this. And we're going to talk about four things today. We're going to talk about the humbling love of God, the sacrificial love of God, the holy love of God, and the graceful love of God. Humbling, sacrificial, holy, and graceful. So let's go with the first point, the humbling love of God. The way, um, the way I'm going to be using the word humbling here uh, is almost like a synonym of, for a term that has been used in church history forever. Um, church history, in church history and theologians, usually when they talk about what Jesus came to do, they describe it as the humiliation of Christ. That's what I'm thinking in here when I think about the humbling love of God. What Jesus was willing to give up, to surrender, to um, how much he was willing to suffer for the sake of his people. One key passage in the New Testament that explains this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, in which says that Jesus made himself nothing. I love the description. He made himself nothing. Another translation says he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant. Of a servant. If you want to know how much God loves you, Pay attention to how much Jesus was willing to humble himself, to put his glory aside, to put comfort and peace and joy and the sufficiency of the Trinity to the side, to become a servant man. Church, not just to become a man, a servant man. This is part of the reason why we celebrate this in Advent. Because everything is started by God, by Jesus becoming a man. Being born as a baby in a manger. Surrounded by animals in a borrowed place with everything but glory. Which is crazy to me. With everything but glory. And the prophet Isaiah is actually going to give us a description of, of what this looks like. 
So, for example, in verse 2, so I'm going to skip verse 1. So, in verse 2, he's described as a man as a tender shoot. You know what that means? As someone that, from a human perspective, had the appearance of a person that was easily broken, fragile, like a baby. He's also described as the root out of a dry ground. From a human perspective, again, he seemed like a man that had nothing to offer. Which is crazy when you think of Jesus that way. He's also describing the same sentence as someone with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. No magnificence, no splendor, no physical attractiveness, no greatness at all. Everything but glory. We're talking about the king of the universe. And then in verse 3. He is described as someone that was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. You know what that phrase means? Someone that was used to suffering. Not someone that suffered every now and then, but use, he's used to suffer. Right? And he says that we, um, like, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of low esteem. That sentence is crazy. He was considered worthless, with no dignity, no value, not worthy of kindness, not worthy of respect, not worthy of love. That verse, in my opinion, is extremely ironic. Because human beings by nature, because we're created in the image of God. We have value, dignity, and worth. And Jesus, by becoming a human being, has none of that. Jesus, by becoming a human being, has no dignity, no value, and not worth from a human perspective. I find that extremely ironic. Now, if you want the weight of this to really penetrate your heart, you have to put the humiliation of Christ next to the divinity and majesty of Christ. If you really want the sense of this to penetrate your heart, you have to put the humiliation of Christ next to the divinity, beauty, and magnificence of Christ. The best person that I think does this is Sam Storms. This is how he puts it. The word became flesh. God became a human. The invincible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited, be unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. The spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The love became hated. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity from inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross. From a ruler to being a ruled, from power to weakness. 
It is only when you see the beauty, the divinity, the magnitude of who Jesus is and was, and you see what he becomes, that that penetrates your heart. This is the reason why Jonathan Edwards, for example, when he talks about the incarnation of Christ, he calls it the greatest event, the most wonderful and greater event. This is the reason why he says that. Because when God created the world, that was a great event. And I quote, but not so great as the incarnation of Christ. It was a great thing for God to make the creature, but not so great as for the creator himself to become a creature. Listen up. Because he didn't have to. He didn't have to. So if I ask the question to our Lord, God, do you love me? The only thing that God needs to say is, look at Christ in his beauty and his glory. Look at him as who, how he really is and who he really is. And then look at what he became for you. Do you have that question? See, true love is measured by one's willingness to give away, to surrender, and to sacrifice. And God was willing to surrender his most precious possession. Now he's leftovers. Now the question is this, why would God do that? And the answer is this. It was either him or me. Either it was his suffering or my suffering. The reason why Jesus needed to come like that as a man is because it will be his humility for my pride. The reason why Jesus needed to come and do what he did is because I did not want to go to him that he had to comfort me. His humility for my pride. Point number two. Let's talk about the sacrificial love of God. Now, look at how Isaiah describes this type of love. In verse 4, it says that he surely took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God. Notice that he wasn't punished by Pilate, punished by the soldiers, punished by Judas, punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And of course, this passage is talking about the cross. And he's saying that Jesus came not just to be born in a manger, right, but to grow up to be a pain, a man that would suffer pain, suffering, and punishment. But verse 5 tells you why. Once again, because it was, it was either going to be him or it was going to have to be me. It was either going to have to be him or it was going to have to be us. And verse 5 tells us that there's two reasons why that needed to happen. That had to happen. And he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. You know what the word transgression means? A synonym it could be rebellion. You know what rebellion means? It's when you purposely Tell God, 
I can do without you. See, transgression is when we purposely, in our hearts, even if we don't say it, in our hearts, we are saying, I don't care about you. I don't need you. Which, by the way, every time we try to do something without God, that's exactly what we say. I mean, if you tell that to me, that doesn't matter. But if you do that to God, that's a different issue. And it also tells us that Jesus needed to come and do what he did, not only because we are transgressors, but because he needed to be crushed for our iniquities. This means simply make, breaking the law for purposely breaking God's commands. We are never just victims. We purposely have rejected God, either by commission or omission. You know what that means? Just, just in case. Commission means when you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it. That's commission, right? My wife tells my wife, the Lord tells me, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Die for her. And I don't do it on purpose, that's commission. And I think that a lot of Christians understand that. I think that sometimes we find excuses to justify our sins of omission. When you don't do what you're supposed to do. We don't sin only when we do what we're not supposed to do. We sin when we don't do what we're supposed to do. By the way, that's how I think you should read the Ten Commandments. Don't you see the imperative? See the implication of it. And Isaiah says that we needed that Jesus had to come to suffer on our behalf because both our motives and our behavior were corrupted. What is interesting here, though, is that not only he's going to talk about motives and behavior, but he's actually going to talk about our nature. And what he's going to show us is that us without Jesus and without him coming to suffer, we are, we are completely hopeless. And we see that in verse 6. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned into our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I don't know how, what you feel. Like, listen, I don't know what you feel when, someone, when the Bible says that you are a sheep. Now, okay, th this is family, all right? So how many of you guys feel really nice when the Bible calls you a sheep? Nobody. Bunch of liars. Have you seen the pictures of Jesus carrying the sheep? Isn't that cute? Did you know that, that that's never a compliment? Did you know that when the Bible calls you a sheep, that's not a compliment? Like you should feel offended by it. Because sheep are dumb. No, really, they are. They're cute, but dumb. Just like, just like us. Cured but dumb. It's interesting because, you know, we have this idea, right, that when we are sheep, we look, oh, that's so cute. And if I use the Spanglish, thank you, right? It's, we think of, oh, right, but the, the idea, if you know anything about these animals, right, is that in times of pressure, uh, these animals get easily, lo get easily lost. When they feel the pressure, they don't know what to do. Actually, they're incapable of saving themselves. They, they don't know how to do that. 
And the worst thing of all is that they're, blind, that they're blind to their own deficiencies. There's humanism for you. Blind to our own deficiencies, incapable of saving ourselves, and in times of pressure, we get easily lost. So when I was writing this, this image came to mind, which is a famous picture. You're saying Jesus walking around with the sheep in his shoulder, you know, and everyone. You probably have a picture like that at home, which is cool. But that picture is offensive. It's meant to be offensive. Because he tells you that we are so limited, so broken, our nature so ruined, that if Jesus doesn't go for us and carry us back, there is no hope. Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come to save you and suffer for you. Because your motives were broken, your actions were broken, your nature was broken. Verse 5 says that we were people desperately looking for peace and to be healed. The hardest thing for any human being is to admit and to recognize that we are broken people. The hardest thing. Actually, we all do it. You know how I know that we all do it? Because when you think that you're evil, you automatically look for someone in your head that is worse than you. Oh, yeah, I'm bad, but I'm, I'm not like Eric. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? That's how we know that we struggle with this. Billy Graham used to say that it is easier to save a person than that is that, let me see, that it is easier to save a person than to convince a person that they are lost. It is easier. Um... Years ago, there was a, a, a man named Alexander White. He was a preacher, a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. He's preaching a sermon to his congregation, and he looks at the congregation and he says, I have found the most evil person in this room. And he paused. And then he says, it's Alexander White. C.J. Uh, Chesterton, he says something similar to that. He asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And his answer is me. I got to tell you that as a personal experience, in my first three years of Christianity, I had such a hard time understanding that my motives were wrong, that my behavior was wrong, and that my human nature was corrupted. It was only when I finally embraced that that the sacrificial love of God made sense. Because if you can save yourself, why do you need Jesus? If you, if you need a positive talk to make you feel better, why do we need Jesus? If we can do it by ourselves, why do we need Jesus? This is the reason why the sacrificial love of God was so important. It was his sacrifice for my guilt. His sacrifice for my guilt. So if I ask God the question today, God, do you love me? God would say this. 
Look at the sacrificial love of Christ. No need to wonder if I love you. Look at what Jesus was willing to do for you. And stop wondering if I love you. Point number three. Let's talk about the holy love of God. And this one I want to be a little bit more theological. Not so much inspirational. In verse 70 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, right? He was led like a lamb, and then he says that he was also like a sheep. And that before they're getting executed, or as they're being executed, they stay silent. And he did not open his mouth. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that in real life, but we have. Actually, Sergio and I have quite a few times. Because when we were younger, like 20 years ago, right, uh, we used to do a camp in which we will um, uh, take a sheep and, you know, keep it with us for a while. And then we would, uh, I'm sorry, kill it and then eat the meat. Right? There was a reason for that. We're not just that crazy. There was a reason why we did that. Right? But what is interesting, though, is that the way the Bible describes a sheep is exactly what happens. It's crazy. It's crazy. They let you kill them. And they say nothing. Have you ever heard a pig getting killed? That's crazy. Right? This one is nothing like that. Actually, my experience was, I don't know if you remember, they look at you. And as you execute it, they say nothing. They just look at you. And the Bible says that that's exactly what Jesus did. He's looking at us, spiritually speaking, and he allows himself to be killed and says nothing. You know, Jesus complained two different times, and none of them when he was being executed. He complained in Gethsemane before he, when he says, you know, my, my father, if it's possible for me to go uh, to, to get rid of this cup, please do it. And then the second time he, he, he uh, complained is when he's already nailed to the cross. Why have you forsaken me? But he allowed himself to get killed. Why? Once again, it was either him or us. But more than that is because Jesus knew that the wrath of God had to be satisfied. So look with me, verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment. By the way, that means that Jesus was unjustly uh, treated and executed. He was taken away, yet who, who, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. And the reason why I want to spend some time thinking about this one here is because there's this tendency to separate the love of God from the wrath of God. There's this tendency to think of God as a God of love, but ignore that God is a God of holiness as well. And these two concepts are inseparable. You don't get to pick the kind of God you want. You got to have them as the love of God and the love of holiness. And the, God, and the God of love and the God of uh, wrath. I have heard people say something like this. I like the God of the New Testament. 
He is the God of love. I do not like or agree with the God of the Old Testament, the God of wrath. But this is the theological foundation that I want you to embrace, if you want. That it is because God is holy that he is loving. And it is because God is holy that he has to be a God of wrath. Because God cannot look at your sin and my sin and say, oh, just forgive him. Because if he does that, he stops being holy. Because in his law, if we have sinned, we deserve to die. Did you get that concept? It is impossible for God to look at a sinner and just say, Walk away. He's debilitating his law. He's breaking his own law. It is because God is holy that God is a God of wrath. And it is because God is a God of wrath that Jesus had to die. The most amazing thing about Christianity is that God finds the way to both extend mercy and grace and at the same time fulfill his law. Because God is holy. It is his punishment for my peace. Have you ever thought of God in those terms? So if you ever wonder if God is for you and if God loves you, look at how much Jesus was willing to take for you. You know, this is the explanation that theologians give, that when Jesus goes to Gethsemane and he's crying out to the Father and he's asking for the Lord to take this cup away from him, is because that cup meant the wrath of God. You know, it is the wrath of God because of the sins of the, this entire universe coming upon him. It wasn't that Jesus was being a coward. It's that Jesus was being a human being. He knew what was coming. He knew what he was going to experience. Actually, Whenever you want to or whenever you can, you go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 52. And there's one verse in verse 14 that is amazing to me. It says that as many were astonished, that means rude, um, shocked at you, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human being. That word astonished for me is amazing. Because it tells you that Jesus suffers so and so much. And that when Jesus is nailed to a cross, the, he was completely disfigured. And that was nothing compared to the wrath of God. This is the reason why we must celebrate Christmas. This is the reason why we have to celebrate. Because we remember that Jesus was not just baby Jesus. It was Jesus taking upon himself the wrath of God. You know what leads us to live holy lives? It's not just your conscience. You know what drives you to repent quick? It's not just because you want to be a good Christian. Do you know why we want to live lives that give glory to God? It's not just because this is what we do. 
The reason why we are quick to repent, the reason why we want to live lives of holiness, the reason why we want to do the things that we want to do is out of gratitude because we know what our Savior suffered for us, the wrath of God, His punishment for my peace. Everything else is moralism or religion. Only that is Christianity. Point number four, the graceful love of God. And here what I want you to see is the effect of the humiliation of Jesus, the effect of the sacrificial love of Jesus, the effect of what what Jesus accomplished when he took the wrath upon himself. Verse 10 says that because of what he did, we become offsprings of God. A translation for that, a synonym of the word offspring is adopted. The reason why you can call yourself a child of God, adopted in Jesus, is because he went to the cross and did what he did. Listen up. If that is true then, then you can be completely certain that God your father will never feel ashamed of you. And that he will never walk away from you. When I, think that, when I think of that as in human terms, it doesn't matter what my daughters do or what they will do. They never stop being my daughter. That's the same thing for you because of the love of Christ. And the second thing has to do with justification. You see at the bottom when it says in verse 11, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. I'll explain that in a second. My righteous servant will justify many. And if that is true, and it is, that means not only that God adopted you as children of his, but that he delights in you. Um, that is so hard for us to believe, you know. Especially when we sin. Even when we struggle and we see our shortcomings and we see that we are so far away from where we're supposed to be. But for me, this doctrine of justification and to know that God delights in me. You know what delights me, right? That he truly delights in you. That image has given me so much freedom. In my worst day, or on my worst day, he still delights in me. Because I am in Jesus Christ. So next time you want to ask the Lord, do you love me? You got to remember that it's his grace for your life. Here, I told you that sometimes we ask the Lord this question. Do you love me? Is because we don't sense God's love enough. Sometimes we ask the question, Do you love me? Because we don't hear the word love enough. Sometimes we ask the Lord the question, do you love me? Because um, he's he's not showing us enough or doing enough. I want to argue that the way you sense God's love for you and you hear that God loves you and you show how you see how much he has done for you is when you embrace what God already did for you. So I told you in verse 11 says that God saw and he was satisfied. 
So this is the question. If God the Father is satisfied because of the work of Jesus Christ, don't you think that we could be satisfied as well? It's an irony to me that the Father is already satisfied because of what Jesus did, and we can't. May the Lord grant us in this Christmas, may the Lord grant us in this Advent, to be fully satisfied in Jesus and what he did for us. Here's a song, it says, oh, how he loves us. And he's jealous for me. And how great your affections are for me. May that be our prayer today. Amen? Let's pray. Beautiful Savior. I just pray, Lord, that this may not be just another Advent in which everything stays the same. May this be an Advent in which we are fully satisfied in who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Please allow us to see the humiliation of Christ as an evidence of love. The sacrificial Love at uh, the sacrificial life of Jesus as an evidence of love, the holiness of Jesus and the wrath of God as an evidence of love. And allow us to see that all of that is because of your grace. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus, and we all say.